Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California for our program today. I'm John Zipper, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and Michelle's co-host for this program. Now at the Commonwealth Club, we're still producing hundreds of programs a year, both online and increasingly in person again. So check out our upcoming programs at commonwealthclub.org slash events, or specifically get Michelle's upcoming programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Uh, if you're watching us live on YouTube, add your questions to the chat box and we'll work some of them into our discussion today. Um, now I want to introduce Michelle Miao. She's the producer and host of the Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Hello, Michelle. Hey, John, thank you so much. And thank you to all of you who are joining us for this program. Happy New Year and also Happy Lunar New Year for those uh, those of you who who observe it's coming up this Monday. Also, something very special is coming up this Monday, a film that premieres on PBS's documentary series, Independent Lens. And it's an in-depth look at the evolution of queer comics. So here with us to discuss the film is director and producer of No Straight Lines, and a, and a couple of the artists whose work was featured in the film. We've got Jennifer Camper, who's a cartoonist and also founder of the Rude Girl, I should say creator of Rude Girls and Dangerous Women, Subgirls, uh, and also editor of Juicy Mother Anthologies and founding director of Queers and Comics, uh, Queers and Comics Conference, Justin Hall, who's creator of True Travel Tales, Hard to Swallow, Theater of Terror, Revenge of the Queers and No Straight Lines, uh, also contributing to the film, as I had mentioned, uh, four decades of career comics, also a producer of No Straight Lines and, on, and the chair uh, in and master's in comics program at the California College of the Arts. And of course, I mentioned the director and producer of No Straight Lines, Vivian Kleiman. Before we get to the conversation, we've got the trailer just for you. Clearly, when I discovered gay comics, the thought that I could draw about my queer life was really revolutionary. I was tired of feeling hidden, feeling misunderstood. A fuse had been lit. It's time. Let all the voices out. The storytelling became very raw and visceral. We're no longer token sidekicks. We're no longer sad stories. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Well, welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having Hello. us. Great well, to be here. You know, one of the things I enjoyed a lot when I was watching the film was the fact that, you know, in, in comics, there was an opportunity and space to come out in a lot of different ways. And so traditionally here on the program, we share coming out stories, and that's where we will begin. So I'll start with Vivian. Share with us a coming out story. Oh, how fun. <laughs> uh, actually, mine was a tortured route. I was, uh, like I could say, I was dragged up in a uh, fundamentalist religious home um, where if I came out to my mother, she would say the prayer of the dead over me. So it was a pretty, it, it took me a while uh, to come out to my family. But um, uh, once I arrived in Amsterdam <laughs> that sunny day, uh, there was no turning back. Justin. My coming out story was a lot less dramatic than Vivian's, I think. Uh, I grew up in an academic household and, you know, it took some time with, with um, to get everybody adjusted. And uh, there's a, definitely an evolution. But um, 
uh, I was um, in no real danger. Uh, and I give thanks to that for, for um, uh, uh, profoundly. And, and in fact, my, my parents are, you know, quite loving and supportive. Um, and that's just a, a true blessing. And finally, Jennifer. Well, I didn't really have to come out. I remember asking, somebody was asking my sister when she found out I was gay. And she said, well, we always knew. So um, I, you know, there were certain people I had to tell. But I luckily grew up in a very non-traditional family. So um, being queer was the least of our issues. <laughs> well, let me kind of ask. I, I have family thing. envy. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask a different type of origin story, if you will. And that is, how did you come to comics, both as a consumer of them, a reader of them, but then also, of course, being attracted to it as a creator and drawer and writer and inker and everything? Um, Justin, why don't you go first? It's the, the comics are how I learned to read. I was I was a geek from the get go. So I, I um, and it's you know oftentimes I think of, we think of it as a phase for for children to go through. It was not a phase I ever grew out of. I just knew I loved this medium that combined verbal and and uh, uh, textual storytelling, and just it it sort of you know it became the foundation of the way I sort of think about the world and the lens through which I see the world. So I always knew I wanted to make comics from the very beginning. Um, and you know, uh, which is really nice to have a sense of purpose from 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 you know childhood on. Yeah, I was I was the same way. I I loved writing and I loved drawing, and I did both of those things separately. But comics were just something you could do together. And I think you know, when you're a kid, you live in a world of daydreams and make believe, and you know, we just never stopped living in that world as cartoonists. <laughs> and Vivian. Uh, well, unlike the two artists, uh, Justin and, and Jen, um, I was uh, a mere consumer of comics from a young age, you know, going to the store with my couple of pennies and uh, buying Archie and, you know, Superman and, and whatnot, and then graduating to Mad Magazine. Um, but really, it was Alison Bechtel's uh, Dykes to Watch Out For that grabbed my heart. And, you know, it, here in the Bay Area, it was syndicated every other week and the local feminist newspaper Plexus. And with bated breath, we would all just, you know, run to get our issue and find out what happened to our favorite characters. Let's stay with you, Vivian, and talk about the film and how it came um, to fruition and the idea of it. I mean, you know, a focus on our community, our LGBTQIA plus artists, but not just as artists, as human beings, as folks who have contributed to our movement and so on. And so I feel like, you know, this film uh, isn't just for the queer people who are into comics or even comic fans. Yo, thank you. That's wonderful to hear. Um, the idea actually originated with uh, Justin, uh, who, uh, after having completed uh, the first anthology of queer comics, uh, No Straight Lines, uh, Four Decades of Queer Comics, uh, had the notion of doing a documentary film, uh, approached or was approached by a, a mutual friend, Greg Sirota. And uh, so the genesis of the project began because uh, Greg and I had worked together and um, Greg invited me to get involved. Uh, long story short, what really grabbed my heart, because in the beginning it was kind of like, well, you know, I don't know. Uh, I'm, maybe I'm not the right person for this because I'm not a comics geek. Um, but Justin really uh, encouraged me to go and attend the world's first international in-gathering of queer uh, comic book artists, 
organized by none other than Jen Camber and Justin Hall. <laughs> and um, I walked into that uh, conference space and I was immediately grabbed. Um, it was the entire panoply of uh, queer uh, life from the GQ gentleman on, you know, uh, engaged in conversation with uh, a young person, uh, gender non, very much gender non-binary, uh, covered with tats, and um, everybody around them completely engaged in uh, conversation and joy. And the stories that I heard over the next few days of the conference were so compelling. Um, that I like to say it was a, a casting director's dream because he had so many people to choose from uh, to film and so many images, a plethora of delicious imagery uh, to focus on that it really was like a little kid going into a, a candy shop. And Justin, tell us about the origin then of the book that was the origin of the, the movie, or the film. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Jen can speak to this as well. I, uh, queer cartoonists, we were such a sort of insular little world, you know, and everybody, uh, I, you know, it's, it, it felt like everybody knew each other, which is not exactly true, but, but there was this, you know, a very much a community sense within queer comics. Um, queer comics really existed in a parallel universe from the rest of co the comic book world, um, because they were not really sold through bookstores or uh, comic book stores, but they were serialized in queer and feminist newspapers. They were sold in, you know, gay and feminist uh, bookstores, um, uh, queer publishers would publish them. So they really existed sort of in a parallel universe. And I, you know, I got into comics and um, I initially uh, started a, a queer cartoonist panel and at Alternative Press Expo and here in the Bay Area in San Francisco and brought Alison Bechdel on in 2003. And already she had been making Dykes to Watch Out For for almost 20 years at that point, I think. And uh, was one of the greatest cartoonists on the planet, but no one had heard of her, and she had never been to a comic. It was the first time she'd ever been to a comic book convention. Just sort of wild. That's how isolated this this scene was from the rest of the comics world. And it became, you know, um, I, I got involved with one uh, with Prism Comics, which was one of the first sort of nonprofits to sort of support uh, queer cartoonists and queer stories within this comic space. And just it, I, you know, started meeting more people and wanted to create a, a history of this of this um, artistic scene and community that could be accessible by people outside of it, um, by you know people in the broader comics community and and even outside of that. So, um, but uh, yeah, so that was sort of the genesis of the book. And you know, I, I'd say about sort of three years of research, you know, digging through different archives and talking to people. Um, you know, again, it's a community that's quite tight knit and everybody is sort of knows each other. So I could get personal stories from people and find out where, you know, what what happened where and when and how. Uh, and Jen was a huge part of that, too, because uh, she is a, a font of information. And knowledge and wisdom. <laughs> Jen, <that's your> <laughs> Do you want to add anything to that, Jen? Well, I, I think what's interesting about um, queer comics is they... They also are a documentation of queer history and civil rights. So you see the, the things that we're talking about in, in comics from the you know, late 60s, 70s up till the present mirrors what's going on in, in the queer world. And so you, know, you, you get lovely comics and lovely stories, but you also get a sense of you know, our history. And I think it's, a, it's an archive of our community. Mm -hmm. and, and I was, I loved the film and, and, and it was great to see some of the, these just epic, huge names. You've mentioned Alison Bechdel, Jim, you are in there. Um, and and uh, 
so back in 2015, when I first started co-hosting programs with Michelle Miao, our very first guest was Howard Cruz. Oh. And uh, he was absolutely a delight to talk to. And I was pleased that uh, I also had the chance to work with him when he did a cover for our Commonwealth Club magazine one month. Oh. Um, but so let's talk, let's talk about some of the folks who are in the film and, and maybe start with Howard. I mean, he, he kind of seems to have been there through this, all this, this uh, evolution from pre-underground to undergrounds to mainstream to alternative comics to uh, 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 you know, graphic novels to online. So um, maybe someone start and give us more what, what he was like and, and what role he played in this evolution. Yeah, I, Howard was definitely, you know, we call him the godfather of queer comics, and he was doing his own underground comics um, and had, you know, some gay characters in, in those comics. And then he he and Dennis Kitchen um, put together an anthology comic book called Gay Comics, and that's where many of us got our starts. Uh, Mary Wings and uh, Roberta Gregory had already made their own lesbian comics separately, as discussed in the film. But those were really the the you know the genesis. You know, out of underground comics, people were saying, "Well, what about the queer stories?" And um, Howard was a huge mentor for myself, for so many people. His his comics are so spectacular; they're so complex. And he set the bar incredibly high for the rest of us. And he was also incredibly generous with his knowledge. And he was the person we all went to, like, how do you do a contract? How do you reproduce a, you know, Zipatone? You know, all these technical questions that cartoonists might have. Howard was the go-to person. And he was so, you know, generous with his time and his knowledge. Uh, really, we all owe a huge debt to Howard Cruz and I miss him tremendously. I'm so pleased that we have this film to that documents him as well. I, I would just add that, you know, oftentimes you don't want to meet your artistic heroes because oftentimes <laughs> they're terrible people. <laughs> um, and that is not true with Howard. Like Howard was as beautiful a person as his line work and as his art was, which is a, a sort of astounding, right? And you know, as Jen said, he was really the godfather of queer comics, and he, you know, there was stuff that predated his work, but when he came out and he was the sort of editor of this, of this uh, uh, foundational um, anthology series, and then everybody sort of looked to him also for sort of their artistic excellence, and also just the sort of generosity of spirit, he kicked open doors and held them open for everybody else, yeah. and it's, it's, you know, uh, you sort of wonder sometimes, like, how does an artistic scene, you know, are there uh, develop and evolve, and are there sometimes people that will that will help that um, create a personality for that artistic community? And and Howard is one of those people. It was a beautiful artistic community in part because he was so beautiful. Um, and you know, I think and, and Vivian can speak to this um, that you know when when he died, you know, we were it was difficult getting this film done. You know, there was some dark moments of the soul of trying to like get this thing through to completion. And when he died, we were like we we have to finish, we have to get it done for Howard because that legacy needs to be cemented. Yeah, let me add that um, at that conference, uh, the first Queers and Comics conference, Howard gave an amazing presentation. I, I think he may have been the keynote. Yeah. Um, 
but he essentially walked through the uh, journey of his own life. And as I sat there, I understood that this chronology that he was presenting and the images, his, you know, the samples of his work through all those decades that he was showing us, I knew that at that point that that could form the outline, that could be the structure of a documentary film. Uh, and uh, for a while I toyed with that uh, as, as the principal organizing principal. Um, and, uh, you know, there's so many paths one can take. You know, I also want to add that uh, part of what's part of the magic of his work, in addition um, to what Jenny and uh, Justin have noted, um, was he would do he would do uh, panels that were so uh, that that spoke of experiences outside of the queer world. You know, yes, the you know the character in the comic is right has written their come out letter to their family, and then they have. It's, they throw it in the mailbox and they have last minute regret, but it's too late. It's already been put in the federal mailbox. And I thought to myself when he showed that slide, my goodness, that notion of regret. How many of us have had, you know, that wish that we could take back our words, take back that email and, you know, rewrite it. Uh, uh, it just felt like the work was reaching far beyond uh, the queer community. John also mentioned Alison Bechtel, and um, I think the way that you know, Alison shares uh, their work in the film, we, we look at it from the his uh, historical context, but also the evolution of Alison's work, period, right? And I think it was Rupert who had said, you know, um, a comment on Fun Homes, or I'm sorry, Fun Home, and that it was like the pinnacle of Allison's career, but also it was a kind of a turning point for comics in a way. And it came off of what Allison had described as a dry spell for comics. And so we'd love to hear, you know, your, your thoughts on evolution of queer comics. We'll start with Jen. Well, you know, you can look at the history of comics also as the history of publishing and technology. Um, so you know, the early undergrounds were sort of self-published and put out in, you know, head shops and whatnot. And out of that grew the idea of, oh, you can make your own comics outside of the mainstream. And so then queers, women and people of color started infiltrating that heterosexual white boy world of underground <laughs> comics. Um, and like Justin said, we had our own queer newspapers, bookstores, and publishers, just because we had to. Nobody else was going to publish our work. Um, and then you got the, the rise of big box stores that actually started having LGBTQ sections. And then you also got the idea that, you know, mainstream or independent publishers might publish a queer book. And then the internet came. And so all of our structures were constantly in flux and changing. And you know, Allison and a bunch of us were publishing in, you know, doing biweekly strips that would run in maybe 50 queer papers in the United States and Canada. Well, when those started drying up, where do we go? Do we go to the internet? But how do you get paid? And that's what Allison was struggling with when she finally decided to, to do her graphic memoir. Um, and, you know, the whole comics world is always changing. It, it's still in a, you know, publishing is changing. So it's interesting to see how that influences the kinds of work we make. 
Yeah, the the owner of, from what I understand, the the, the owner of Fire uh, Firebrand Books, which was an underground lesbian publisher, you know, was the one who to suggest to, to Allison to make a graphic novel because Allison was struggling as the the queer newspapers were folding, and um, to make a living um, because Dykes to Watch Out for was being run in fewer and fewer papers. So um, she embarked on this sort of seven year uh, journey to get this graphic novel done about her family, graphic memoir. Um, and then by the time that it was ready to publish, that uh, Firebrand Books was no longer around. Luckily, at that point, it was that book was uh, picked up by Houghton Mifflin. It was sort of uh, that was the moment in history where a big queer graphic novel of that stature was able to sort of move over into the mainstream. You know, you look at Howard's um, Stuck Rubber Baby, and that happened. That was put out eleven years earlier in 1995. And it was too early, right? Like the world wasn't ready for a big queer graphic novel, uh, which I, you know, I would argue that Sucker River Baby is maybe sort of our great, the closest thing we have to the great American graphic novel, because it's about the civil rights era. It's about sort of coming out in Alabama. Um, and uh, it got critical attention, but it didn't get the sort of um, uh, audiences that that Allison was able to get with Fun Home. So it was, it was, the moment was right for Fun Home to come out. And then Fun Home, as Michelle, as you mentioned, really changed everything. I mean, it allowed for not only a big queer narrative to come into the, into the mainstream, and uh, but also for a literary, a book of that literary stature. It's probably the most literary graphic novel that had been made to that point. Um, and it really sort of uh, uh, gave a new paradigm for, for uh, creation of uh, comics. Yeah, I just want to add that the, the gatekeepers were changing. You know, when Howard's Stuck Rubber Baby came out, the New York Times, most major uh, publications would not review a comic book. And, you know, so it was, I mean, in a way, he Howard was too early. Um, and, and so, you know, it was by the time Fun Home came out, there were enough people who were editors and publishers and gatekeepers, basically, who had grown up with the idea of literary comics for grown-ups as a thing. One, one thing I'd like to uh, add to all this um, is uh, what I really uh, enjoy having had the opportunity to uh, not just include Allison uh, in the film along with the four other um, wonderful pioneers of queer comics, but to um, show the, the influences on Allison and that Allison didn't just arrive from Mars, you know, pristine, you know, MacArthur fellow, ready, you know, uh, talent, but that there's this whole, you know, there were a few decades of artists prior uh, who influenced her and from whom she learned, as, we were, as Jen said, from, you know, Howard Cruz. And, um, and then also we had the opportunity while, she, while Allison was in her studio uh, uh, showing some of her personal techniques, uh, she also... Um, talks about her, you know, oh my God, this is really crappy. And she, you know, she was willing to show the dirty laundry as it were, or the, the mistakes that she made and the crappy paper and crappy ink. And I didn't know what I was doing. And here, look, this is much more professional uh, 20 years later. So I think it's really an important opportunity for younger artists um, to witness this great talent and that she didn't just arrive as a finished package, but it took a lot of hard work and self-discipline and dedication to arrive at. If I could, um, Vivian had this amazing idea within the film to include this sort of Greek chorus of younger uh, queer comics creators, and that I think really solidifies that idea that you're talking about, right? That that um, this 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 work by these sort of pioneers opens these doors and then influences generations that come afterward. Um, 
uh, and Jen really worked on this a lot with the Careers and Comics Conference, which was really about, in a lot of ways, show you know connecting the older generations to the younger generations uh, coming up, and and so that they can meet each other and sort of you know the older generations could get that validation of like your work really mattered, like it really it was important stuff, right? And um, and the uh, younger generations could then meet the people that had sort of opened these doors for them. Uh, and uh, we, we try to show that in the film. A lot of a lot of the younger generation is actually former students of mine. <laughs> so so it's sort of, uh, you know, they, ha they had to know this history because I was teaching that. So they, <laughs> they're going to pass my class. Um, but it, it, I think that's a really, it, you know, with queer history and comics history are both histories that get swept under the rug and oftentimes aren't really given um, a validation or uh, aren't. Uh, shown properly. So to do a film like this um, is really important and other projects like this is really important to, to reclaim our history. We have some behind the scenes clips that Vivian sent to us. And so let's play a, a little bit from those clips. You know, for a long time, I really enjoyed all that public stuff, even going to big conventions, doing book tours, meeting people in different cities, going to colleges, talking about my work. I did that very happily for a long time until I just hit the wall. I think it was with the musical and all the increased publicity stuff I had to do for that. I just really, I feel like I almost had a nervous breakdown. I didn't actually, or maybe I did and I was too busy to notice, but um, I'm like so done with it. But for, for so long, of course, everyone wants attention and recognition for their work and it was so important to me to be able to talk to people about what I was doing, but now it's the last thing I want to do. I'm sorry, I shouldn't talk in public about how burned out I am about talking in public. <laughs> I hope she doesn't kill me for including that. <laughs> that was great to see. <laughs> well, you know, that's, that's such a common thing that cartoonists struggle with because making comics is incredibly labor intensive and you spend, you, you know, there's research, there's writing, there's drawing, there's, it just, it takes years and years. And, and so, you know, so many of us, so many cartoonists are introverts where they just hole up in their, in their room and work. Um, but then, you know, some of us are extroverts and want to go out and have adventures. It, it's a constant struggle, time and and labor for cartoonists. I, I was actually going to ask more about that because my stepfather was a, a political cartoonist. And he also did a strip for four years back in the 70s. Um, and I was thinking along because it was it's a very, he did it all himself. You know, everything, his ideas, everything, he would create it and do it all. Um, and then... Jen, in particular, I'd like you to talk about then, okay, what, how did the idea for the conference come about? And tying to that is, is was there a hunger for people to kind of break out of their, their own kind of, for lack of a better term, their own shell and, and, and have their own creative process and to talk about it? And, you know, was, was it difficult to convince Howard to talk about his, his life or were people hungry for that? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a rare breed. I'm an extrovert cartoonist, so I love to throw a party. And I just wanted to have a big party, invite all the cartoonists. But I made it a conference, so we had some excuse to get together. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to, you know, figure out a way we could get as many queer cartoonists together in a room for a long weekend. And I think people were really hungry to see each other and and also 
you know, the idea, as has been discussed, about bringing the different generations together. Mm -hmm. You know, so many of us have read each other's work, but we never met each other. And so it was really exciting for me to find people you know, that I had read, but I'd never met or didn't ever know where they were and to try and, you know, dig people up out of the past and then to, you know, bring in all the new people. And, um, it, you know, it was a tremendous amount of work and I probably won't do it again, but we did three conferences and it was, it was phenomenal. And I can point to, to people who met at that conference then who ended up doing work together. And so I feel like all those three conferences were um, absolutely generated new work and new ideas. There's, if I could uh, uh, speak to one moment like that in the, which I love in the film is when you see Lawrence Lindell um, talk about the influence of Rupert Kennard. And Lawrence was a former student of mine. I had sort of taught him about Rupert's work. And then we were able, and then when Jen and I put together the, the Queers and Comics, Com Comics Conference at CCA in 2017, we put them on a panel together of queer black cartoonists. And um, they were able to meet each other, and that I think was was really profound for both of them, um, be, uh, because you could see this intergenerational legacy. Um, and now, um, and you, in, in, so to capture that, you know, if everyone was able to capture that in the film as well, which is really wonderful. And then just recently, uh, Lawrence put together a, a Canard Award, which he's like sort of giving out to people, which is really sort of continuing that legacy even farther. So, it's yeah, that just warms the heart. <laughs> Rupert's story in the movie, in the film, is, is really interesting. Why don't you, you tell the, the, the viewers of our program here more about him and, and his creation? Because he also was one of the folks who kind of crossed over and combined both gender and, and racial issues and, and just, just went straight full forward with it. And then sometimes catching some of the audience unaware that, oh, I didn't realize this character was gay or whatever. Vivian, if you want to take this, you've known Rupert for quite a yeah, while. Yeah. Um... Uh, I actually met Rupert first in the 80s. He was a friend of my film partner and buddy, uh, Marlon Riggs, who uh, created a very controversial uh, film called Tongues Untied about being a Black gay man in America. And um, yeah, at the time, Rupert was working in the Bay Area doing graphic design mostly, uh, and some, and he did start a strip, uh, I believe he was working with The Advocate. I don't remember exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, he moved out of the area and unfortunately had a traumatic health situation. Um, and uh, so that kind of changed his life immensely. But um, one of the things that's most amazing about Rupert is, for one, he has the most mellifluous voice. <laughs> that, <laughs> and he sound, all the sound recorders just love working uh, with Rupert. Um, and uh, such a unique contribution in the history of uh, comics, uh, not just queer comics, of the the, the courage uh, to uh, come out of uh, a world of where he was he found himself drawing super white superheroes, and then suddenly all of a sudden realizing, hey, what's going on here? I'm a black gay man. Why can't I draw my own life? And that epiphany is a very special moment um, in the film. So talking about evolution, uh, we we actually were talking a lot about technology before the program began and how interesting technology is. It's working, you know, in, in one minute and then the next it's not working. Um, but how are comics consumed today? You know, are they 
are are people consuming them through their phones? Are they posted, you know, in a Facebook or TikTok posts? Tell us how, yeah, people are consuming comics today. We'll start with Jen. I mean, all of the above. Everybody is getting their comics however they want or however they can. Um, so definitely the internet is a, is a huge boon for people to get their work out there. Um, and people are seeing their reading comics on all kinds of screens. And yet publishing is still going strong. And what I love is there's still hordes of people still like making their own little zines with paper and, and tape and, you know, staples and, and photocopying and every comic convention I go to, there's a new batch of kids making homemade zines. So I love the fact that all and every technology is fair game for comics. And, you know, that's one of the glories of comics is that they're so accessible and, you know, they're, they're on a bulletin board or taped on a refrigerator um, or now they're, you know, get turned into memes and they're on all social media they're a really powerful way to communicate ideas, and that's part of their glory. I, I, it absolutely is connected to the history of, of technology. It's really interesting um, that you know you think about, for example, the the rise of the of the punk zines and mini comics, and that was really tied to the you know uh, easy accessibility of uh, photocopy machines that were coming into play, right? Um, in the same way that eight tracks were sort of, you know, uh, the development of the eight track was a, a way that punk musicians were were able to sort of come in, into uh, creation. Uh, um, so, so technology absolutely becomes a huge part of how um, art is created and distributed. Um, and I would also say in terms of community building. So when I made my first comic book, I did it in a vacuum. I didn't know any other cartoonists. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no way to find out what um, to the proper proper ways to create a comic. Uh, and then I sort of stumbled into, uh, you know, I was, I remember I was uh, getting a cup of, of tea at a local cafe and I saw a geeky uh, comic book tattoo on a guy and I was like, oh, that's the Spidey Tracer from the original Spider-Man comics. And he was like, oh, you, you know comics and I'm making a comic. And I was like, I'm making a comic too. That's how I met my first cartoonist. Um, and we then ended up tabling together and like, and then I started meeting eventually queer cartoonists uh, like like Jen and other people and then become part of, become, uh, becoming part of this community. But now I watch my students and they just, they can create a comic, they put it up on Instagram and boom, they have community right away. People interacting with their work, uh, commenting upon their work, trading tips about how to make the work. All that stuff happens instantaneously now. Um, so, I, you know, I don't, I'm, Jen, I'm not sure what your early, early experiences were, but, I, you know, it was for me, it was like coming out of a vacuum, slowly kind of scrambling and clawing to get my way into a community. And that happens really quickly now because of technology. One thing that uh, impressed me at um, one of the conferences, I was seated next to a very young person who had a sketchbook and a pen and was just drawing a comic. And I turned to this person. I said, hey, you're using a pen and, and paper. That's like old school, isn't it? And the person looked at me like I was from Mars and said, well, is there any other way you could do a comic? You can't like do it on a computer. This is somebody who is probably 22 years old at most. Um, at the same time, we have uh, some an artist, Awan Mance, who lives here in Oakland. And uh, I, I don't know Awan's original work, but I know that a lot of Awan's work is uh, working directly on a computer. 
And uh, now Ellen is doing animation. <laughs> and so it's really cool seeing how the tools of the trade are evolving and, and artists are picking up on what's available uh, and accessible on, in an in electronic medium. We've yeah, just, Go ahead. So I was going to add that, you know, so much of this is uh, points to why community is so important for both queers and cartoonists, because, you know, how do we learn, oh, there's a new piece of software out that you can do this technique with? Well, you, you learn from other cartoonists. Um, a lot of us do. And, you know, how do you navigate through the world as a queer person? We learn from our community. Um, and I think, you know, I feel really grateful that I've had both those communities in my life. Certainly being a, a, a creator of art and, and sharing it via social media can give you that great uh, interaction from your intended audience, let's say. Um, we also know social media give us and take us. I mean, do you also get the negatives from, you know, the, the various jerks who are going around uh, you know, protesting uh, drag queen power out or reading books and stuff like that. Um, do you get that negativity feedback from social media? How do you deal with it? Or do they, is this under the radar to them? Because it involves words that they'd have to read. <laughs> well, in terms of the film, we've had very little negative uh, feedback, which right. I'm completely stunned and appreciative of. <laughs> um, there have been, uh, if, hey, if it was a film that appealed to everyone, I would have been wasting my time. Um, so I'm very happy to have some people rejected and some reviewers uh, rejected, but they're very few and far fewer than I ever expected. Uh, so that's very gratifying. Uh, queer comics have always been censored. Um, you know, back in the early days, there was a lot of issues about what we were printing in the gay press and, you know, certain stores wouldn't carry those you know kinds of uh content um certainly publishers wouldn't publish our work and you know even today that you know all these uh censoring the books in in school libraries and whatnot you know queer content and comics tend to be the top of all those lists and i think it just again shows the power of words and pictures together you know if you have a piece of prose that describes you know two women having sex it suddenly that sort of stays under the radar but when you draw a picture of it and have words with it then that's really scary to some people so that that you know that just makes me realize how important comics are there is also like as this um you know this very unique artistic scene was so sort of hidden from the rest of the world right because it was very much within uh, um, this insular world of queer, queer media. And as it's gotten more accepted, it has also um, uh, become more vulnerable to, to the attacks you're talking about. I mean, one of the people in our in, our, in the film is Maya Kobabe, um, one of the sort of Greek chorus of younger cartoonists, another former student of mine. And, and you know, Maya did Genderqueer, which is the, the a graphic memoir about uh, being non-binary. And, you know, he has had to deal with, you know, you know incredible threats. Um, and it's the most banned book in America now, um, in part because of what Jen, Jen is talking about. It's not, it's a very sort of thoughtful and, and you know, it's not obscene at all, you know, but but the fact that, that you know, that, you know, he draws a, a body, a, a, you know, human naked body in it, with, you know, not for pornographic intent, but just sort of, um, you know, I think just freaks out certain kinds of, of people and, 
and 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 it directly addresses the concept of queerness that queerness exists and and is not a bad thing and here's my journey with it and and you know other people should take strength in the in the you know the journey that I went through um and I can tell them something about that and we can help each other that that whole concept is so dangerous right for people who don't want us to exist and I just mm -hmm. want to add that you know these people who are objecting to this kind of work are actually only giving it more publicity and you know so all of these banned books are now being made available from certain libraries and you know getting a lot of publicity in the press so you know it, it's this thing that doesn't really it's not really rational most of the people who are complaining on the books haven't even read them they just got a list and they said oh these are the books we want to get rid of what's scary is when it does turn into violence against cartoonists and particularly trans cartoonists are are being targeted a lot um but ultimately the art does win because any kid that's told don't read this book that kid is going to go out and find that book i would yeah. <laughs> i was just thinking a new marketing strategy <laughs> um well you know let's talk about the current political environment and its contribution or its impact on we as LGBTQIA plus artists and people, we know that in queer comics, right, we have covered HIV AIDS, we covered um, ourselves in existence, marriage equality, some of those political issues that have sometimes shaped the stories that we tell. What can you say about the current political environment and how it may have impacted uh, storytelling in comics? Uh, for, so, for some reason, I feel like, Jen, you probably have some thoughts around this. <laughs> Jen has um, thoughts about everything. So, I have so. thoughts about everything. Whether I should say them all is another question. Uh, you know, I think, like I said before, you know, we're, we're going to reflect our times in the comics. And so, you know, right now, sort of, you know, there's within any civil rights mo movement, there's, you know, two steps forward and one step back. And so, you know, we, we've made tremendous progress, but we still have a lot, a, a lot of battles to, to uh, fight. Um, you know, the, the harassment and, and need for civil rights for transgender people is, is paramount. And, you know, I think that's something that's reflected in trans cartoonists work and, and everybody's work dealing with gender and identity and, and, and issues of civil rights. Um, I think also people are moving into genre in a new way. Um, you know, it used to be that everyone was telling their coming out story. And now it's, you know, I think the biggest topic is is sci-fi and fantasy. You know, it, it's kids growing up reading a certain kind of comic and then saying, well, I'm going to make this comic, but put my own identity in it. Um, so you're starting to find, you know, comics that's journalism, that's that's erotica that's literary fiction that's autobiography that's biography like all these genres are being explored and and all different kinds of art different ways to use words and pictures um and that's what's exciting because it's a it's a it's a art form that can be the 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 envelope can be pushed so many ways queers in space <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'd like I mean, to bring it. Excuse me. I'd like to bring it home to the film uh, for a moment, uh, which and um, uh, describe the trajectory as to how we arrived at national public television. 
because I think it's a cautionary tale. Um, we tried knocking on the doors after the film finished its festival run. We tried knocking on the doors of all the corporate streamers, you know, Netflix, HBO, Hulu, and we were rejected multiple times. Um, can't say exactly why, but can suspect that it was, somebody once said it was too educational. <laughs> uh, and um, about what, we won't say. <laughs> um, but the point is then, National PBS came to us and said, hey, would you consider broadcasting this film on national public television, knowing that we would have to make some adjustments to the images uh, to conform with FCC regulations? Uh, I was quite familiar with the FCC rules and um, checked in with the main artists. Of course, um, wouldn't move forward without every, their approval. and. Uh, the response was, we don't like covering up body parts, but for the sake of reaching two or three million viewers, um, we agree. And so began uh, a long journey down a road that went far beyond FCC requirements. And then we entered the land of PBS morals. What are the, what, it's not laws, but it's like the, the new morality that the new standard that uh, the legal department at National PBS has in order to protect themselves from assault from the extreme right, which is they have their finger on the trigger to uh, throw darts at you know the art funding of the arts, funding of culture, funding of uh, public television. So um, it was a very it really was a barometer of where the culture wars are today, and quite different from where they were in the early '90s when a film like Tongues and Tide was broadcast on national public television. And at the time, by the way, the head of uh, public television was a Mormon, Bruce Christensen. Um, so yeah, we we are at a very different place uh, in terms of what can cannot be um, revealed uh, to, to the general public on public broadcasting. Let me go off on that in a bit of a different direction. I'm gonna ask you this question, Vivian, about the film, but Jen and Justin, I want to ask you about it uh, in terms of comics, and that's the audience. And, and you know, with something like, P like PBS, Vivian, you just mentioned it's going to be billions of people are going to watch it. Clearly, they're not all LGBTQ audiences. They're all not LGBTQ comic uh, <laughs> consumers. Um, so aside from standards and practices sort of thing, um, in communicating, did, did, did you, was your intention or did you, who did you intend it to reach as an audience originally when you were pulling this together? And then Jen and, and Justin, I'm gonna ask you about, because I think in the, I take it kind of in the early days of, of you know, the undergrounds and, and such, you had a very specific audience um, of, you know, gays and lesbians who were, you know, finally hearing someone or seeing someone talk about their stories, but has that changed over the years? And now, you know, Fun Home, was recommended to me by a straight person and you know so that what kind of an audience uh how does that or if that affects what you do and how you communicate it so if that's not a long rambling question i'll just throw it back to Vivian, Vivian first. that's that's my kind of question um 
You know, when Justin and I first sat down and started to think about a film, uh, I can absolutely assure you there was never, ever a second that we thought it would reach <laughs> such a broad audience of viewers. It was clear that um, the queer community was going to be uh, eager uh, to to see the film and learn about our history through the vernacular of uh, youth, young people, which is comics. Um, I suspected that the audience would just in general be young people um, because comics, you know, that is the language of today. Uh, the notion that it reaches a bigger audience, however, on what, it, yes, it completely is surprising. But at the same time, you know, we worked really hard to make it be more than just who did what when and following a, a linear chronology. The film is not chronological in its storytelling. And it is not uh, focused on information. It's more about personal stories. It's about challenges that people faced and uh, overcame. And the idea was to have those stories work in service of reaching young people who might be going through the same. I, I wish I had had this film when I was a young person. It would have helped me enormously. I know that the incidence of um, attempted suicide among queer youth by far exceeds the general population. So that I've always had that in the back of my, my mind. Um, and if I could reach one person, that'd be awesome. Uh, but I know as a filmmaker that if you infuse a film with authenticity, where you're not trying to explain it to an outsider, but you're just having, you're constructing a conversation among, um, you know, friends or like-minded people, um, that you are giving it a vitality and a rawness that uh, appeals to a much bigger audience. And that's what uh, we were trying to aim for. And that's why we spent a lot of time uh, in the editing room. Thank you. Um, Justin, from the- Yeah, I mean, just to echo what Vivian said, like that was absolutely in, in our minds with, with making the film that we wanted to create authentic stories. And of course, you know, and, and Vivian had to sort of remind me, because I'm a historian, right? So in a comics historian, so Vivian had to remind me like, it's, you know, it's a, it's a it's a film about this history, but it's really a film about characters. And so, but you know, I, I've worked with characters as well. So that's but it was it was nice to sort of be able to capture these. Um, luckily, these pioneers are not only important historically, but also incredibly fascinating. You know, uh, interesting people on camera, uh, like Jen. <laughs> um, so, and then in terms of the comics I make, it is um, it's interesting because uh, I, I feel like you know when I first started my my career as a cartoonist, I definitely was making. Um, I made comics that weren't queer as, queer as well, but then I was making, when I was making queer comics, it was really for uh, an insular audience. And that has changed. That really has changed where I, I feel like the authentic storytelling um, that you can, that, whatever authentic uh, storytelling you can bring forward is something that will be acknowledged and consumed by people who are interested in, in storytelling um, in general. So, you know, I, you know, show all different kinds of stuff to my students, for example, and they eat all of it up, you know, and, and it's, I think it, it goes to the, uh, speaks to the power of good art where, where you can um, look beyond your own life experiences to, uh, with, with a compelling story and uh, see beyond yourself. And that's one of the reasons we make art, right, is to have that kind of communication and transcendence. Okay. And John, yeah, I'll, I'll maybe just add that, you know, when I started doing comics, my, you know, I, you're, as a cartoonist, your first reader is yourself. And so you're making the comics that you want to read. Um, and then I kind of always just figured, well, there's some other dykes out there like me who might enjoy it. 
you know, and I still kind of think that way. And I forget that there's, you know, a whole bunch of other people out there in the world that could read these. Um, but I also write in this coming from my perspective, you know, a queer woman, half Arab, lives in New York, you know, there's a, a certain age. It's like there's a certain perspective there. And I just assume the reader knows that. And it's interesting that years ago, you know, not non-queer people or even non-queer women would not understand a lot about lesbian culture. And I think still a lot of people don't, but more people are are cognizant of certain things that we all just as queer cartoonists take for granted. And that's kind of an interesting change I've seen over, over the years. I, I would say that there's sort of interesting alchemy where like if you try to make work that's accessible for everyone, the work becomes flat and boring and nobody nobody cares. But if you make work that's really specific and authentic to your experience and sort of, you know, peels back the, you know, the, the, the or opens the doors for other people to look in, um, that's, that t- can resonate like way beyond what you might expect. Um, so that's really exciting to see that work happen, you know. And I'm also so grateful for for this for Vivian and Justin to make this movie because people who've never even thought about comics as a piece of literature or that there are queer comics out there will suddenly, you know, learn about it. And it brings in a whole bunch of new readers, which I think is fun. So is there is there still an underground? <laughs> Oh yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> There's always work that's not accepted by the mainstream and yeah. it's still going to be made. Yeah. I mean, it's uh it's interesting uh you know in the in the past certainly if you had any queer characters or any queer themes um because the mainstream you know st- you know avoided it like the plague it was necessarily going to be a queer comic, right? Uh, it was going to necessarily be underground. And that's not true anymore. You have a lesbian batwoman, you've got, you know, a gay green lantern or whatever, you know. So um but I-, I would say that there's still, you know, it's not the job for the mainstream like a-, a gay archie character or a superhero to talk about the, you know, like poke fun at and analyze and really dissect the queer experience from an insider's point of view. It's their job to like punch villains, you know, and maybe they might be queer. Representation is incredibly important and absolutely, you know, and those those stories reach so many people and especially, you know, younger people, as Vivian was talking about. So that's really important. But we still need the underground, right, to sort of do the the harder work, the more in-depth work of looking at our experiences, our life experiences, our our realities in a more complex way. And that falls to the underground. Um, so there's going to be, you know, there's queer underground uh, stories that will continue to be needed and um, and and devoured by those who who need them. Talking about gay characters and storylines in mainstream comics, are those being drawn and written by queer artists and writers um, or by straight writers? Does it matter? Uh, I I think that's a really interesting question. And um, in terms of the you know mainstream comics production. Uh, representation has happened sort of haltingly, right? So, so initially, the f- first uh, appearance of a certain identity um, that is not, you know, straight white uh, male, um, it tends to be created by the straight white males. Um, you know, Black Panther was created by Jack Kirby, right? Um, but you know, eventually, you get to a point, and oftentimes it's incredibly clunky. So the first. Uh, first, um, you know, gay superheroes were like really awkward, really just 
terrible. Um, and, you know, uh, immediately got, you know, sort of uh, space versions of, of HIV and all this stuff. Um, <laughs> really awkward storylines. But then, you know, that's changed, right? So now uh, uh, the industry is much more savvy. You have some someone like Cena Grace, who is in our film as one of the Greek uh, chorus. Uh, he wrote an Iceman uh, series for Iceman as a gay character in the X-Men. Uh, for Marvel Comics. So it's, it's, they've gotten a lot more savvy about this and um, the representation is much, much better now. I can't believe we've spent an hour talking about queer comics and we can go on and on and on. Oh. <laughs> um, but as you all head into the weekend, we want to remind you that this film, No Straight Lines, premieres on Monday on PBS's Independent Lens uh, documentary series. And and I think it's it's 10 in the evening, Pacific or Eastern? Uh, it depends on where you're located. And not this. It, the, the challenge is not all cities um, show it at the same time or if at all. So you kind of have to, uh, if you want to watch live broadcast, you have to check in with your local uh, PBS station for their schedule. Uh, well, the last question, uh, go ahead, Justin. I was just going to say, and Vivian uh, can jump in here, but it, it will be streaming for three months for free on the PBS app. So it's, you know, you can get this this film for free. And then after that, I believe for three years, um, uh, if you are a paying member of PBS, which is a wonderful thing to do. <laughs> oh, good. I'm on a three-year track then. I'll just keep watching that <laughs> over and in over the, and over. Yeah, in the Bay Area, though, it's, most of our watchers are here in the Bay Area. It's 10 p.m. on KQED Monday evening, the 23rd. Gotcha. Um, the last question goes to, to you. I think, you know, what you said, what the experience of bringing this film to an audience and then finding, you know, partner with PBS, but also the fact that PBS has to have some, uh, clause or a response and, 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 and it pertaining to this, their safety and this idea of an extremist group possibly, you know, a, a, some kind of an attack. I, there's just something incredibly fundamentally wrong about this. And so I'm hoping in this way that you talking about it, you bring this film to a platform like PBS that we're, we're going to wake up to say, I take a stand at some point, this is wrong and, and we've got to do something about it. What are your hopes as far as the takeaway for people who tune in and watch the film? Oh, really, truly, I do hope that there'll be young people watching the film and that they will feel free, the freedom to uh, express their authentic selves. And if not within the safety of their homes, at least they can go online and find like-minded people. And I hope that the film will help encourage that, um, that process of self-discovery. Awesome. More, more well, Jen, you want to add something? Yeah, I was just going to say, I hope it brings us all more queer comics. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So everyone tune in. Tune in Monday or become a, a PBS uh, supporter or get your access. I want to thank all of you for joining us. It's the first program of the year. I'm on the other side of the world, but don't worry. Don't fret. I'll be back soon. And like John said, there are going to be more in-person programs and so i look forward to that john you have the last word well we'll be back online tomorrow same time for the next michelle meow show um, until then i'll add my thanks to our three special guests today 
as, and last but not least, thanks to all of you for watching and listening online. You can learn more both about upcoming programs as well as getting audio and video of past programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMF. So stay safe and have a good rest of your week. Goodbye.